I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Silicon Valley is betting big on the potential of virtual reality to transform learning in schools, not just in the U.S., but also worldwide. VR startups have raised more than $1.46 billion in venture capital since 2012. And it's not just startups anymore. Even Facebook and Google are involved. At the same time, the technology publication TechCrunch notes that since the 1950s, virtual reality has been hovering on the periphery of technology without achieving accepted mainstream application or commercial adoption. I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and joining me today to discuss virtual reality's potential in the classroom is Michael Horn. Michael is a distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovations, a nonprofit think tank he helped found. He's written extensively on education technology, including the award-winning 2008 book, Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change How the World Learns. And of course, he's also an executive editor at Education Next. Michael, thanks for taking the time to join me for this week's podcast. Good to be here. So, Michael, your column in the fall 2016 issue of the journal, Virtual Reality Disruption, digs into the current hype surrounding the use of virtual reality in K-12 classrooms. I want to dig into the reasons people are excited, as well as reasons we might be skeptical of their enthusiasm. But let's start by talking about what exactly it is. How does it work, and why might it be useful? Sure thing. So the current instantiation of the virtual reality hype or, or, or experience, if you will, is such that a, a student, picture this, would put something on their head, goggles in, in essence, with lenses, and with just dropping their cell phone behind it, clicking on an app, it would bring up a virtual reality world in essence. It would render the image in 3D, and the student could just by shifting their head in different directions, clicking on different parts of the, strength, uh, of the screen, zoom in, go through guided tours of different worlds, different parts of the country, uh, et cetera, different moments even in history, and experience uh, uh, these worlds come to life in much greater detail than you ever could unless you had a crazy budget to go on field trips around the world. So we're not talking necessarily about these fancy Oculus Rift uh, headsets that cost thousands of dollars at this point, as I understand it. We're talking about something that right now is ready to be delivered much more affordably in classrooms? That's right. So the Oculus Rift, right, they have a $600, I think, headset. It was originally supposed to be $300. Who knows what it'll be Mm -hmm. when it hits classrooms. Uh, And that's one version of this virtual reality world. That is apparently extremely uh, high tech and very, very robust. But what we're seeing is that Google came out uh, in, uh, about a year year ago with a much cheaper device, $15 little cardboard thing with just 45 millimeter lenses that you can quickly put together yourself. You can even buy the parts at a local hardware store and create these kits. And then they just give you apps that you can jump on. And so it's a lower tech experience. It's not nearly as refined as the Oculus experience, but you can start learning in virtual reality right away And we're starting to see other companies now introduce curriculum for the classroom such that this can be very accessible to students. And this is a model of innovation that you've written about, right? This introduction of low-cost alternatives to expand the market. Can you tell us a little bit about why that might be a promising strategy for a new technology to 
gain a foothold? Yeah, I, so it's classic disruptive strategy, right? It, and it's exactly what you said. It, it doesn't have to offer the best experience in the world. Oftentimes, innovations get their start in foothold markets where the alternative is literally nothing at all. The majority of schools are not going to be able to afford a $600 device for every single student. That's just cost prohibitive out of the bat. So Google comes along with a disruptive strategy of here's a $15 uh, device. We give you the app for free in essence. I think they love it because it gets you on Google more. And uh, takes off their primitive, not that great, but the technology gets better year over year and they can count on that technological progress such that five, ten years from now, who knows how good this is and powerful it is. And as we've seen in other research and we've published in the journal uh, at Education Next, field trips, for example, have enormous value outside of academics even. Uh, for students. And so if you can start to bring some of those experiences into the classroom much more accessible for many, many students, that could be a pretty exciting breakthrough. So let's talk a bit more about how this might be used and why it might be valuable in the classroom. And here I want to push you on an example that you provided in the article in the journal. So uh, you start out the article by asking us to picture a student using these goggles to transform her from a classroom in Athens, Georgia, to the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. Uh, you have her peering up and down each of the 17 columns on the temple side and examining its fluted shafts. You write, she notes they have no bases. It's easy to understand the differences between Ionic and Doric architecture here. Rather than relying on textbook descriptions, those differences come to life before her eyes. Now, I actually remember learning about the differences between Ionic and Doric columns in elementary school. I have to admit, I can't remember the difference today, but I also don't recall learning about them being a particularly difficult task, just a quick exercise in memorization. So my question is, is it really easier to understand the differences between Ionic and Doric columns when you encounter them versus via virtual reality? Or is the virtual reality environment just a distraction from really what is just the essence of the content. I think you've hit on the question that educators ought to be asking, right? My example is obviously a simplified example to bring a reader into a story. Uh, and I think that's the, the challenge with all these technology hypes, right? Is that we get so excited about the technology itself that we forget about what is the learning objective and what's the best way to achieve that quite frankly, in an efficient time manner, right? There's lots of ways to explore uh, the world and recreate science experiments and whatever else. That may not be the best way to actually get fundamental learning for students in certain cases. And so I think educators, as they're starting to bring these things in, can't be just attracted by the bells and whistles and the gee whiz, look at what I can do. Uh, similar to, quite frankly, how educators get just thrilled with the fact that students can create films now in matters of minutes, they, should all, they actually ought to be looking at the content itself and what is a student uh, showcasing in the script and what are they writing in that film. Same thing here, I think, is the principle. And uh, as you think about learning about the difference between Ionic and Doric uh, columns, you can imagine that, yes, there, there may be a benefit for actually getting a 3D rendering of it. That's probably a five-minute experience at most. It, maybe it's a little bit sharper. Uh, it'll stay in the memory a little bit more than a picture. I don't know that you'd want to spend an entire 45-minute class period on that. Right, so you can imagine it being used as a strategy to try and make content more comprehensible, but also as a means of trying to engage students in content, right, to try to get them to be motivated to learn about a topic. Also, the field trip application strikes me as one that is quite promising as a way to provide students with an immersive experience that they just wouldn't otherwise have. So what's going to determine how 
this moves forward, the, whether the uh, sort of potential implicit in the hype surrounding the technology is realized. Yeah, so I think there's a couple things that have to happen. One, people, fundamentally, I think a lot of these movements, game-based learning is, this, is, is very similar to this, where people create a very cool technology that could have a very cool educational purpose, a fully immersive field trip where you're literally spending hours exploring the Louvre might be one of those and, and taking away lots of takeaways you can't even imagine at the outset. Um, but, you know, schools have 45-minute class periods. They have subjects. They have lessons. They're very interdependent architectures, and you can't just sort of change one piece without impacting the rest of the school design. And so unless people create these things as plug-compatible with the way schools actually work, I think you're going to see very limited adoption. And uh, Greg Tapo, who, who, who wrote the uh, uh, book about... Um, uh, game-based learning recently that we covered in Education Next. Yeah, we have an excerpt in, from it in the journal. Yeah, yeah exactly. And and I remember him saying to me uh, a, a few years back that he went to one of these game-based learning conferences, uh, and then he went to just a video games conference more generally, and he was like, total hype, excitement, life is good at the video game-based uh, uh, conference. Then you go to the game-based learning one, and everyone's sitting there wondering, why does no one care about them? Um and sort of angsty about it. And I think virtual reality could be the same unless people really figure out we have to plug it into the actual architecture that schools have today rather than thinking somehow people are going to throw out everything that they do and just adopt it because it's a gee whiz thing. And so that means creating lessons, uh, creating things that can work with lesson plans for teachers that match curriculum that teachers are actually trying to work through. And Google and Houghton Mifflin actually just announced a partnership this summer uh, that I think is very promising on this front to uh, basically take virtual reality uh, units or experiences, like in the Florida Seminoles and places like that, and plug it in to match uh, actual Houghton Mifflin curriculum. So it's a sustaining innovation, but I think it's an important one. Well, that starts to address where I wanted to go with my next question, which is, uh, you've talked a bit about how the cost of the technology is not particularly prohibitive at this point, but uh, uh, I assume that it takes a good bit of resources to try to develop the immersive experiences themselves. So who has the resources and perhaps more importantly the incentives to generate the uh, virtual worlds that students would have the opportunity to encounter? Yeah, I think this is going to be like an open question for some time, right? Google has a bit of an edge on it. You could argue because of its Google Maps, Google Street View, a lot of infrastructure, so to speak, that they've already done work on, that maybe uh, making it immersive is less of a stretch. Uh, the curriculum companies certainly do uh, ha have uh, an incentive to do this, to basically say, hey, we have one more add-on to what we already offer you for the same price uh, to keep uh, customers with them longer and sort of stave off the potential of an uh, low-cost uh, online disruption or uh, open education resources may be coming in and somehow displacing them. Uh, but I think it's an open question, and a lot of people are, you know, Nearpod, for example, is hypothesizing teachers will somehow create these lessons in the long run. I'm not quite sure where teachers are going to get the time or expertise to do that unless the tools are unbelievably uh, uh, just, you know, point-and-click simple, uh, basically. And so I look at this and see a lot of question marks around how we create enough of a robust content base that fits the schools we have today to get that sort of adoption. Now, when people talk about the excitement about the potential scale of the market, it seems to me they're talking about sort of widespread use of these uh, technologies, perhaps in a very superficial way in many, many schools. Another way in which the market could expand perhaps 
I would think might be more promising would be for a relatively small number of schools to really try and develop uh, entire school models that take advantage of it in a more uh, fundamental way. Which of those trajectories is more likely, and uh, am I right to think that it might make more sense to uh, think about a, I don't know, narrower set of schools where the uh, technology really takes hold? Yeah, I think if we want to see the big breakthroughs, that's right. You, you would want to see a school actually re-architect the way it fundamentally thinks about everything to make this not an add-on and just something extra that you do every four weeks, jump in for 10 minutes and do a virtual world environment, gee, that was fun, and then get back out. Um, but if it's really going to be integrated into the curricula curriculum, I think you'd want to see a school literally re-architect its, its entire curriculum in a meaty way around this, much as Summit Public Schools has done uh, in the blended competency-based world. And I think you see uh, the results of that is it's a much more impactful uh, uh, set of um, interactions between direct instruction, project-based learning, which has always seemed promising but never really been put together uh, in a holistic way. Summit seems to be walking that line by just re-architecting the entire school around these things. At the same time, I guess with broader market penetration, you could achieve more casual or intermittent use of the technology, and that might not be worthless, as you said, sort of offering the students to experience something akin to a field trip to exotic locales when they don't even have the opportunity to go on a field trip even anywhere outside of their school uh, could be quite meaningful, if not exactly transformative, of the fundamental schooling experience. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's the trade-off, right? And schools, I think they, regardless though, it points to a design feature, which is that schools probably ought to think about this not just as a plug-compatible 15-minute uh, sort of thing that occurs once every few days, but something that they either re-architect their entire school around, top to bottom, year-round, or something that they re-architect certain days around, much as if you were to go on a field trip, you go on a field trip for the entire day, typically. Uh, you don't have other classes then. And so that cuts into other decisions you make and has trade-offs, right, for your learning, uh, which means that the whole team really needs to make that decision together. I think schools ought to probably treat it that way as well as they think about field trips. If they really want something immersive, have all the teachers, all the subject matter experts coming into it and saying, what can we do with a field trip to this place and extract uh, really meaningful lessons out of it. So as someone who writes about ed education technology, who advises companies developing new products and educators how to make the best use of them, what will you be tracking over the next year, five years, to get a sense of how virtual reality is progressing and its implications for the classroom? Yeah, I think the big thing to track is uh, the content that's created, and is it created with teachers' lives in mind and, and, and how school actually appears? Is it really matching the circumstances in which they are? And are we seeing a velocity of, of content creation that would lead us to believe that uh, you could base uh, a school in a, a school uh, on this and it would be a worthwhile investment? Because, you know, Google can say $15 for Google Cardboard. That's not counting the fact that uh, kids are going to throw their devices, uh, scratch their lenses, make all sorts of things uh, go awry and, you know, how many schools don't even allow uh, mobile phones uh, used in the school period. There are a lot of assumptions still that have to come along. And so I think if you don't see that content uh, really take off, then I, I would be skeptical that this is going to be the time that it finally breaks through. So the future depends not just on the progress of the technology, but also 
on the progress of, I guess, common sense in paying attention to how the technology is implemented. As it often does, right? Well, uh, Michael, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I hope you'll come back uh, over the next year or two to update us on what's happening in this exciting space. Would be my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.